spend uh, the vast majority of this program with um, Buck Martinez, so we're going to talk baseball. But uh, rarely would I lead a program with a conversation about soccer or oh, football. Hello? Yeah, Hello? Hello? Who is this? Who is in, this? I mean, in the midst of uh, watching the um, Tampa Bay, I guess it was the Tampa game last night. Chicago played in the afternoon, right? The White yeah, Sox. Chicago was Chicago. Houston was the, was the other way around. Yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, Boston was the, was the prime game. time game. Yeah, and and both of them were turned out to be not blowouts, but uh, boring. Yeah, for the most part, you're right. Boring, boring, boring. And so, and the, and the money and, and and Thursday night football was supposed to be a good matchup, Rams and Seahawks, and it really wasn't. So, well, it got a little nervous nervous in the at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no way the Seattle could win without Russell Wilson. So. Well, maybe not, but I mean, they got the football back with about two minutes left in the game and um, in, you know, I don't know, around their own 20 or something like that. And I think the first play, the guy throws an interception. Geno uh, Smith. Yeah. When the receiver falls down or gets knocked down. Yeah. Um, feel badly for the kid because it yeah. wasn't necessarily a bad pass. But it it looked like a bad pass if you didn't watch the receiver. In. Right, right, right. In the midst of all that, which was of marginal interest, I discovered, clicking the dial as many people do, um, the soccer game. I, I didn't even realize it was on. Now you you won't find that surprising because I'm not the biggest soccer fan in the world. You understand, mm -hmm. right? But I spent a fair bit of the of uh, the second half watching that game. I didn't see any of the goals other than on replay, but. This was a significant achievement for the Canadian national team. I guess they had not escaped Mexico with a tie. Well, they haven't won, but the last time they tied them was 1980. Right, 41 years ago, yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. That's a long time, huh? It is, it is. And, and you know, the what we saw last night and, and not every one of our best internationals was there. Um, we saw a team that uh, played a great first half. Uh, had lots of chances. I'm told lots of chances in the first half. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then in the set in the second half uh, did bend a lot, did bend a lot, but didn't break. And then late, late in the game actually took a lot of the playback over. Uh, it, that part was impressive. What bothered me more about it, about anything, Bob, was the, the Azteca Stadium is one of the great soccer stadiums in the world. Uh, it was supposed to be empty last night. It was there were not supposed to be fans there. Well, they changed that. They they were uh, the the homophobic slurs that were um, prominent there earlier. Uh, they originally gave them two games where they had to play right with That's nobody right. in the stands, and then they right. recanted and made it only one. And so early in the second half, boom, homophobic slurs again yep. uh, against the Canadian team in their own zone. What's going to happen now to Mexico? I mean, this, this, this is what speaks, and, and, and I'm going to take a page out of your book. This is what speaks to the, uh, the rot in FIFA and in CONCACAF mm. is that the big countries, the influential countries, run the program they tell them what to do they tell them what to do and i mean that you know we in this country me we made and as we should have a huge deal out of a a slur against a, a an african canadian player uh, in the ukrainian hockey league yep and it took it, it had three or four days of pages and discussions and it opened up a, a really deep and and sad wound and what will FIFA do now? What will CONCACAF do now for something like this when it wasn't just a one-on-one, -on -one, it was thousands of soccer fans against a, a national team? It's embarrassing. Well, of course it is. It, it, it's despicable. Uh, but it, to answer your question, in my mind, they've got to take at least two more games away from them. Either make them play on the road or, or make them play in front in an empty stadium. Um, I, I think you got to reinstate that that other one that was given back to them, and then add at Correct. least one more. Yeah. So there you got the next their next two games at least. If that's how you determine punishment, 
um, if you're FIFA, then that's what that's what has to happen. Anything less we're than that, because yeah, we're never going we're, we're never going to hear about forfeitures. We're never going to hear about where you're going to lose. I mean, you're going to lose points in the standings. Well, we're never going to hear about that. No, it's not going to happen. No, I, I think you're right, but it's warranted. Yeah. Anyway, every time every every time we think we're getting a little more humane. Yeah. Well, it we we we, we one step forward, twenty nine steps back. Uh, it's tragic, uh, and yet uh, here we are. But but you know, Canada's got two more big games: Jamaica uh, and Panama coming. Yeah. Um, th- they put themselves in a good position. Yeah. Uh, and the and and the draw in Mexico City uh, was a big part of that. It was it was impressive. It was, and it wasn't just Alfonso Davies who gets all the press. Uh, this was a full team effort, and it was it was uh, it was fun to watch. It really was. I, I I'm like you. I, I like soccer more than you do. Uh, but I, I, I got a little tense. I must admit, I got a little tense in the second half. I hear you. And it was, uh, that part, that part was exciting on to baseball. Um, a little bit on the uh, postseason that is ongoing without the blue Jays and a little bit on the blue Jays who are not part of the postseason. the, uh, play-by-play voice of the, uh, of the Jays on uh, Sportsnet, Buck Martinez will join us when we return after these messages. And we're back, McCall and Shannon, uh, with you. And uh, Buck Martinez joins us from Florida uh, once again. And um, we'll spend a lot of time talking about the Toronto Blue Jays and what they do during the off season. But let's uh, let's begin with last night's uh, two games, Game One of the uh, divisional series. Home teams win, both win comfortably. The favorites win. No real surprises, but I guess the margin of victory is really completely and utterly irrelevant in baseball, isn't it, Buck? Yeah, it sure is, Bob. And I think, you know, you just have to separate one game to the next. Uh, Boston's got Chris Sale going today. You know, uh, Chicago, um, I I think the number of players that, you know, getting into the postseason again uh, just takes them a while to settle in. Houston's a very veteran team. And I I just think we're going to see probably a couple of better games tonight, given uh, the matchups and the fact that, First game jitters probably affected the White Sox a little bit, and uh, you know the the Rays are, are really a good team, and I think Boston <laughs> will represent themselves well with Sale on the mound. We saw uh, something you don't see very often: uh, somebody st- stealing home. Um, is that more unusual because it's in the postseason, or do you think it's more likely? Well, of course, we all remember, and we're all old enough to remember the stories of Jackie Robinson stealing home in 55 in game one of the World Series, the Yogi Bear throwing a tantrum. That was terrific. But it's an exciting play. And you know what? I think the Randy Rosarena is a little bit of a throwback player because he plays with kind of a reckless abandon. You know, he's not the greatest defender in the world, but boy, he likes to uh, shine in the big stage. We saw it last year. He had 10 home runs. In 18 games in the postseason, he had 29 hits in the postseason last year, and he's picked it right up. You know, he scored a run on that first inning uh, base hit all the way from first, and then he hits a home run, and then he steals home. Um, he's a special player. And, you know, for me, and I know you guys feel the same way, that's the way baseball is supposed to be played. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's to be played with, with uh, fearlessness, uh, with excitement, with enthusiasm. And it gets the fans involved. It was a, a terrific showing last night by Rosarena. Would you consider um, the four managers that are involved we're, see, we're seeing right now, uh, Cash and Cora, and then uh, the two old fogies and Baker and Larusa, as aggressive managers, or are they are they sit back and wait and be patient managers? Um, I think they're all aggressive managers, especially uh, you know, given what Kevin Cash has had the last few years. Uh, he'll roll the dice any time. Uh, you know they. They play hit and run. They steal bases. They go first to third. They do a lot of good things, a lot of baseball things, despite the fact they're an analytical team. You know, and I think the analytics proved right there last night when a Rosarena stole home. You have to value that extra run more than the value of analytics guarding against the base hit. And I think with Devers playing so far off the base, they gave into analytics a little bit too much and it allowed a Rosarena to steal home. Um, before we get off the Rose Arena bandwagon here, um, you know, you cited the statistics. This guy had a breakout um, postseason last year, one of the most dramatic that we've ever seen. And I kind of expected him 
to do more during the regular season. Now he has started off with a bang in this postseason again. Were you surprised that he didn't have a better regular season? Uh, I think so. Uh, I, I think given the level of uh, performance we saw in the postseason, you kind of expect that he would carry that into the regular season. But it sounds like he's probably going to be the rookie of the year again. Yeah. He's still a rookie, and he had a pretty good year. He didn't have a you know a phenomenal historic year like we might have expected, but he had a good year. And then he picks it up right here in the first game of this postseason. So, yeah, he's a special player, and he's only 26. And you know what? He's, he's not a, a guy that grew up uh, a baseball guy. He was a soccer player initially. That suggests why he's so athletic. But, um, you know, I, once again, we're seeing, you know, think about this. And, um, you know, I'm Latino, but think about all the star players in the game today. Most of them are Latin American players. Yeah, they are. And they play with a enthusiasm and a fearlessness that is so engaging to the fans. And you think about Tatis and Guerrero and Hernandez, and I mean, it goes on and on and on and Alvarez and Houston and, you know, uh, Rosarena and Margot and they just play and they're not textbook taught players. They play with feel and, and they play with uh, baseball intellect and they play with uh, instincts that I don't think we're seeing enough of anymore in this game today. Not to put you on the spot, but is in your in your career in this game, yeah. there were always guys that did get to the next level in the postseason. Is there somebody that jumps to mind that says, "Okay, he had a good, he got a good 162 games, and then man, when he got to the playoffs, he was a different player." Yeah, I think you can think of Frank Robinson and Roberto Clemente and those kind of guys and, uh, you know, Willie Mays. And they, they just had the ability to take the game over with their athleticism and their instincts. And I think Frank especially was a guy that really rose to the occasion in the uh, postseason. Reggie Jackson, of course. I mean, nobody liked the stage more than Red. Sure. And uh, it was just they had the ability first and foremost. And then they had the ability or the they had the personality not to be concerned about making mistakes. And that's what you have to have. You have to have that stand on the ledge of the building and jump off and just trust yourself that you're going to make something happen and it's going to be good. And I, Reggie had that. And the great players have all had that. Molitor and Young had that. Brett had that, of course. Brett was a guy that could take a game over as he did against the Blue Jays in 85. But it's about, trust me, I know what I'm doing and I can win this game. And then mm. they do it time and time again. Isn't part of this. Um, I'm intrigued by your response to this. Isn't part of this. The way the opposition treats um, a hitter during the postseason versus how they would treat him during a regular season. So in other words, you know, you're going up against a guy who's, you know, an acknowledged hitter, um, right. you know, it can, it can take you deep you know, you're going to be careful at all times, but you're going to be extra careful and you're going to be more likely to um, try and nibble at the corners or get, get him out of his comfort zone, even more than during the regular season. Is there some truth in that? Absolutely. Two of the best examples are Barry Bonds and A-Rod. You know, they had a terrible start to their postseason career, but, you know, people spend hours on trying to, to advance scout Barry Bonds and try to figure out, can you get him out first and foremost? And if you can't, don't let him beat you. And same with A-Rod. You know, everybody talking about oh, A-Rod can't perform in the postseason. Well, they're putting so much effort and time into diffusing what he can do that he doesn't get much to hit. And I think that was the case with Brett in 85. Bobby Cox made a point of saying, we're not going to let George Brett beat us. And he hit two home runs and drove in five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. And, and that's, that has a lot to do with the reason why Rick Dempsey is a World Series MVP, why Pat Borders is a World Series MVP, why uh, uh, Doyle, Brian Doyle, the Yankees had a sure. great postseason. Bucky Dent has big hits, you know, because you don't pay attention to those guys. It has something to do with why Buck Martinez hit 333 in the playoffs in 76 because Bravo. nobody considered me a threat. And, uh, you know, that's you know, they've spent time on Brett and McCray and Mayberry, and Buck Martinez got some hits in the series. Uh, I assume you're looking forward to the Dodgers in San Francisco. It's the series I think that everybody is sort of focused on. 213 wins between the two of them. That's a lot. These are two really good teams, huh? Two great teams. And of course, this is my childhood team, the San Francisco Giants. And, uh, 
you know, Northern California hated the Dodgers and Southern California hated the Giants. And I can remember going to Candlestick Park and watching uh, Drysdale knock Willie Mays down every single time he stepped in the box. And then Willie McCovey would hit a two-run home run. <laughs> but Marichelle and Koufax and all these great, you know, this goes back. And how many times this season did we hear the Giants will fold and the Dodgers will win the division? Well, the Giants didn't fold, and they're doing it with a cast of characters that aren't household names. Yeah, you got Belt and Posey and Longoria, but, you know, this isn't the Carl Yastrzemski. This is Mike Yastrzemski, this is the grandson, and, and they, they play great baseball. And, you know, Gabe Kapler is going to get a lot of credit. He probably went manager of the year in the National League because he was basically run out of Philadelphia, and he made some mistakes in Philly. No question about it. But what he's done with his team is remarkable. And they've had some guys step up. They've had some veterans. And Brandon Crawford, the veteran, had a terrific season at shortstop. But it's going to be intriguing to see these two teams. The Dodgers are so deep in talent. And now they've lost Muncie, we know. But Chris Taylor has done this in the past. He's gotten big hits for them in the past. Bellinger, I don't know what's going on with him, but he's always a threat. And then you've got Turner and Seager and the other Turner, and there's all kinds of talent in this series. It's going to be a fun series for sure. I wonder if you think that the historic rivalry of the Dodgers and Giants (laughs) dating back to New York and a big segment of our audience won't even be cognizant of the fact. Most, most, most like all like 99%. Yeah. Well, (laughs) 19 late 1950s, the Dodgers and Giants within a year, both moved to the West coast. And they were rivals in New York. They were both New York-based teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York uh, baseball giants. Do you think that had anything to do with the rivalry that exists today, or is it San Francisco versus Los Angeles purely? I think it started out with a lot of that rivalry on the East Coast coming out West. I mean, it was the first time we had baseball west of the Mississippi, St. Louis, the farthest West team. So now you think about all the teams on the West Coast, and you know, it was always the longest trip to go to St. Louis to play the Cardinals. Well, then the Dodgers and Giants moved in 58 and, you know, they, they played at uh, Memorial Stadium and they played at Seal Stadium. Right. Uh, one was a football stadium and the other was a minor league ballpark. And then they, they built two beautiful ballparks. And I think initially the rivalry was because they were so close and such a tight rivalry in New York. And then it became a Southern California against Northern California kind of rivalry. Same with the Rams and the 49ers. There was the same thing. Um, not to be critical, but it, it, it is often said that teams, uh, that the Dodgers and, and uh, Giants were the first teams west of the Mississippi. But, but I will oh, point don't out. Don't say St. Louis is west of the Mississippi. Don't you dare say that. <laughs> don't you dare say that. I crossed the bridge to get to St. Come Louis. On. Come on. Where are they? West of Come St. Louis. On. <laughs> Come on. They're west of the Mississippi. But, you know, the only re- to Buck's point was the train took a lot longer to get to St. Louis than it did anywhere else. John, uh, I uh, get it. I get it. You guys have had this argument before. I could tell. Yes, yeah, yeah. Hey, by the way, just, just, East, just, East St. Louis, by the way, East St. Louis is east of the Mississippi. And it's now, I wouldn't go there on a bet, but. Oh, <laughs> well, no, no. One of the great steakhouses in the world is in East St. Louis, Illinois. It's just a fantastic steakhouse. By the way, uh, before we t- stop talking about the, the divisional series, um, two things out of the Tampa-Boston series last night, I think a ton of people thought. First of all, uh, they would have sold out if they played in Montreal. Because <laughs> there, there were a lot of blue seats there last night. Yeah, And the Jays would have fared better. I mean, the Jays, I mean, the Canadian content is attendance the is no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? This is an ongoing situation. It's no different than the Oakland A's. And baseball is going to have to do something to rectify it. Tampa Bay has a terrific TV audience. They have a great following on television, but their ballpark is awful. The location isn't best, and it's hard to get to. It's an hour and 40 minutes from my house. And, you know, it's about 40 miles away. And it's just a, it's, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf kind of blackmailed them in the building Tropicana Field many years ago because he threatened to move the White Sox down there. But uh, they threw it up in a, in a hurry, and uh, that's exactly what you get. They've done a great job with the, what they have. The organization is phenomenal, and it's, it's unfortunate that uh, there's a chance that they could have all three of the primary championships here in Tampa Bay by the end of the series. Wow. 
Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, the new city of champions, huh? Yeah. Um, any guesses to where what happens to the A's? They don't seem to be progressing. There's a lot of talk about them going to Vegas. How many years have we heard this? Huh? Oh, no kidding been going on forever and i don't think the giants are ever going to be very accommodating as far as allowing the the age to just move into their territory with a new stadium and i don't think they have the following of the giants obviously giants have much longer deeper roots they were 10 years ahead of oakland moving there in 68 and uh, it's just a bad situation it's it's a bad ballpark it's a horrible outdated ballpark it's uh, no fun to go to and they, too, have done a terrific job putting a product on the field, but nobody really appreciates it, and uh, I'm surprised they've lasted this long. I think this is one of the commissioner's biggest issues, finding a, a place for – and I don't think – you know, I love Montreal. I think Montreal would be a very viable major league team, uh, putting a major league team back there, and I think it should be an American league team, so Montreal and Toronto could have a rivalry. But uh, I don't think Tampa Bay-Montreal split season is going to work at all. Oh, I don't think it's I don't I Buck, I I'm on record as saying I think it's a scam. Yeah. I think the whole concept is we're gonna move the team to Montreal, but we're gonna, we yeah. won't do it until the new stadium in Montreal is ready. Yeah. So in the short term, we'll play a couple of months in Tampa, a couple of three months in um, at the big O. And then when the new ballpark's ready, goodbye, Tampa. Let me tell you this. If and when that happens, remember the 2021 season and how well the Blue Jays handled their three moves. Because yeah, exactly. the teams could have done that. Yeah, yeah. We don't and, – and how will we ever know what, what it cost them? Did it cost them a game uh -huh. or two or three? But just think about we the things on the families. I mean, you know, having lived in the game for my whole life and married to my wife and watched her move family from spring training to a regular city and then to deal with the Blue Jays moving from spring training – and playing in Dunedin and then playing in Buffalo and then finally playing in Toronto. It's amazing what the organization yeah. did. The coach, I, the manager, the players, they all handle it so well. I can't imagine any other team in baseball handling as well as the Blue Jays did. Yeah. And I don't know how many games it cost them, but it cost them the postseason. Oh, no question. So no question. P -p -p Pitching in Tampa and playing in Dunedin, of course, uh, you know, they, they never had a home crowd. Uh, when the Yankees played there, there was a Yankee crowd, and even the Angels had more fans than the Blue Jays in Dunedin, and then they moved to Buffalo, and rarely did they have a favorable crowd there, too, because there were so many uh, Yankee Boston fans, Baltimore fans, and it was tight. Um, the other interesting thing that I'd forgotten about was they actually played an extra road game, technically. I think it was in Anaheim, was it not, Buck? Yes, it was in Anaheim. They got rained out in Anaheim. They had to play a road game. They played a doubleheader in Anaheim late in the season. Yeah, and they were they 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 batted last. They were technically yeah, the no, home team. It was team. the first game of doubleheader. Yeah, they played uh, they played the home team. Yeah. Do, do you remember if they won or lost? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. Sixty-two games, Bob. Be, <laughs> yeah. Yes, Buck. We know. <laughs> but it would be interesting to know whether they if they lost that game. Oh, uh, don't you know, worry. Somebody will you, tell us. Somebody well, I know they us. will. Somebody will check mark and say, "Well, there, there, you see that that one might have been the difference." Although I'm not sure. There were plenty of those opportunities. So obviously, they didn't have that good trip in Anaheim. Didn't play well in Seattle, and you know they had that August. It wasn't very productive, and then they got hot in September. And they scuffed up that that's that when they that return trip from the West Coast, and they ended up going to Washington first, and they scuffed those two games in Washington. Yeah, right. they did. that really did. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint. Difficult and, to pinpoint. And one game, that's hard. When they had all those injuries to their bullpen, I mean, uh, not only the fact that they lost Yates before he ever pitched, but David Phelps was a huge part of this team. And then he went down, lost for the season. And that threw a wrench into the whole bullpen. And you got to give the Blue Jays credit because they went out and got Simber and Richards to shore up the bullpen. And in the end, it proved to be a very, very important move. Uh, we want to focus on the Toronto Blue Jays um, and where they go from here. Buck Martinez is with us. We'll come back after these messages. With Buck Martinez, the voice of the Blue Jays on television, uh, McCowan, Shannon with you as well. So uh, we've had a few days, uh, almost a week, to reflect on uh, what happened. But almost immediately after game 162, if you don't make the postseason, you start looking to the next year and, and the spring and, and what happens here. And there are free agents on this team. There are guys in which decisions are going to have to be made. 
interestingly, Shai Davidi was on with us yesterday, and I, you know, I proposed the scenario. You've got Matz, who's a free agent. You've got Ray, and you've got Semyon. Um, traditionally, pitching is harder to find than any other position. So do you focus on that? And he, his opinion was, no, I signed Semyon. He was the most important of the three. Do you share that sentiment? Yes, I do. And okay, explain why. Pat Gillick always shared that sentiment. If he had to choose between a first-round position player and a first-round pitcher, he always take the first-round position player because they can impact you on a daily basis, as Marcus Simeon did. And Marcus Simeon is in a point of his career. He actually changed the culture of the team with his work ethic not with his rah-rah personality or his in-the-clubhouse chemistry with his work ethic because he went to work every single day. And he took ground balls the final day of the season. And because of that, Espinal and Biggio and Bichette and Guerrero were all taking ground balls every day. So they got better. Isn't that a concept? You practice, <laughs> you get better. But uh, another thing, too, is that uh, when you play every day, like he said, and he told his younger players, you have this chance to do something good. And he proved that out dramatically. So if I were to prioritize signing these players, Simeon would be number one. Mats would be number two because he's going to be cheaper. Yep. I don't think his stuff deteriorates as dramatically as Ray's might because he's got a curveball and a changeup and a sinker ball and he's, leverage he's got a nice delivery Robbie Ray's 100% effort every single pitch yeah and how long can he maintain that they're both similar age of course I would take Robbie Ray on my team any day of the week and love to have him but as far as signability you might be better off signing Stephen Matz first even over Simeon to solidify the rotation a little bit more thinking about the dramatic strides he made under Pete Walker so you sign him first, get him out of the way. Now you've got at least three starters in your rotation, Barrios, Manoa, and Stephen Matz. Then you start to work on Marcus Simeon. And Simeon's uh, exit interview I thought was very interesting. He couldn't be more complimentary of the team, the organization, the facilities, the town. He was really encouraging for me to hear him speak of his experience in Toronto. I thought it was pretty special. Very smart guy, very well-respected guy, and he's going to play his hand. And obviously, he's got a full house right now, and he's going to play it out and get the best offer for he and his family, whether that's simply money or terms or location or opportunity. But he knows what the opportunity is like, and the window in Toronto is a wide window right now. So I think uh, he enjoyed his time there, and I'm thankful that he got at least a little bit of a 30,000 crowd. Mm. And you do know what it's like when it's a full house. Back to 15 sure. and 16, it was nuts. And that's what it'll be again, because this is a fun team. When you see this team daily and how much fun they enjoy playing together, how much fun they have when they win, how sad they are when they lose, this is an easy team to like. Oh, and yeah. I, think, I think Marcus Simeon fits right into that. And he would be my number one priority with the exception of I would sign Matt's to a nice deal, get him signed, put him away, and then focus on Marcus. It's interesting you say that because um, in another sport in this town, Buck, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, went out and signed John Tavares and, uh, and other players first. And, and truthfully, it, it, the agents of the other good players on the team, their noses got out of joint. They got, they got ticked off that they spent the money on – a veteran player rather than looking after the young guys first. Does that not exist in baseball? Is there just a, a, a practicality about, Hey, we'll, we'll sign you when we sign you uh, mentality in baseball, as opposed to the other sports. And listening to Ross Atkins at the end of the season, I think he's had an ongoing conversation with Simeon and, and Robbie Ray to let him know, Hey, we really like you here. We hope it works out. We have an interest in bringing you back. Uh, hopefully uh, our terms will satisfy your needs and I think they've had that conversation but as far as signing Tavares and I'll give that the same value as signing Simeon there has never been a time in professional sports when chemistry and character 
have been more important than they are right now mm -hmm. because everybody's making money. So it's not money that's going to motivate these guys. You have, and if you look at the difference in this team from when Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro Pyro mm -hmm. took over, and they said, we need to change the chemistry of this team and the culture of the clubhouse. Well, they've changed it dramatically and it couldn't be better right now. The veterans are embracing the rookies. The rookies are teaching the veterans, and it's a wonderful mix. So I think that the Tavares signing could be very similar to the Marcus Simeon signing because not only is he a good player, he's a great leader, a great mentor, a good representative, model citizen. He's everything we want in a player. So that is worth some money too. One of the other things uh, we've discussed is the possibility or likelihood of the Blue Jays making a trade of some significance during the season. We, we think often only of free agency. Right. We think of the re-signing of the three guys that um, we've discussed here. Do you expect the Blue Jays to make some kind of move? And is one of their two corner outfielders the most likely candidate yes. to be moved? Yes, I think, uh, well, there's, I think there's some depth in a couple of areas. And I think uh, there's depth in the outfield where you're talking Grichik and Guriel, I would imagine. And Grichik and Guriel are probably the guys that uh, other teams would consider that are attainable. Guriel has become a very good hitter. Randall had a great season, tailed off at the end, drove in a lot of runs early in the season when everybody else wasn't producing. So he has value and he was a very good player. Didn't commit an error in the outfield all year long. But you have some depth there. I mean, you assume that Springer's going to be healthy for a full season, and you know Teoscar's got to play every day. So there's two outfield positions. Now, they need to get more left-handed. They need another left-handed outfield hitter, more of an everyday type of player, possibly a left fielder. They need a third baseman, hopefully a left-handed hitter. But your trade, I think they could trade a catcher. I oh, think for sure. They, Maybe I think two. Trade an outfielder. I don't want to touch any of their pitching, none of their prospects. Pitching prospects are too valuable. And you saw what it cost them to bring in Barrios. Cost them two prime prospects, yep. number one draft pick and a guy they traded for in a very important trade. So I wouldn't touch any of the minor league pitching prospects because you don't know who's going to click. And, and I would make sure that you've got to shore up third base. Ross Atkins has talked about the internal guys, and they all did okay, but they're not championship caliber third baseman on a regular basis. You need an everyday third baseman along the lines of uh, a Kyle Seager, uh, a Corey Seager, somebody like that, put Corey Seager at third base on this team and let him play third base and then sign mm -hmm. Simeon back. Then you've got Seager, Bichette, Simeon, and Guerrero on your infield and move mm -hmm. Corey Seager to third base. And the Blue Jays have done a good job of convincing players, hey, we know you're a shortstop, but we think you can play third base on our team. So I think that's a possibility. And I think, too, Ross Atkins has always talked about wanting to make Toronto a destination once again. You guys saw it in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a baseball destination. Free agents wanted to come to Toronto. Brand new stadium, good team, chance to play in the playoffs every year. And they're getting to that point again. There were more than one player there were more than one player across the field during the course of the season that would tell a coach, hey, man, I'd like to play for your team. You guys are going to be something special for a long time. And those things get noticed, and those things are noted and passed on to the front office. Hey, this guy, really impressed. You know, we might work out a trade for him down the line or something like that. So those things are happening now. And it wasn't always that way. Not that long ago, nobody wanted to come to Toronto because it wasn't a good team, first of all. People want to play on good teams, and this is a good team that's a lot of fun to play on. I don't disagree with any of your assessment, um, and I, th I, I think it's logical. I would say this. Guriel is on a contract that is extraordinary. That I, If, if you right. remember, when they, when they first announced that, it was a seven-year deal, I think. Yeah. I thought, holy cow, this guy who's, you know, that nobody's ever heard of is getting right. this multi-year. in baseball. What a great, what a move, huh? <laughs> in hindsight yeah um and yet because of that deal and it's got time left on it and because of i think his development as a player um he's not the worst outfielder in the world no. he can hit 
Yeah, he, he can hits, really hit. He can hit in the clutch. Yeah. Which is another thing. How many, what do you have, four grand slams this year, Buck? Yeah. You know, um, I'm almost reluctant to move him. That's and, a good point. And, and, and that, that leaves me with Hernandez. And I don't want to move him either. But is there reason to believe you could, I mean, I think you get a bigger payback with a Hernandez than you do with a Guriel. I'm almost positive of it. If yes, no. Trade, if you trade a Hernandez, you better get somebody. I'm trying to think somebody along the lines of a Walker Bueller involved. You better mm -hmm. get some impact player because Teoscar Hernandez is on the same path as Jose Bautista. I'm with you. But the wow, that, that, hold on that hold on that hold on that's that that's some uh, that's some statement. Well, he's on the same path. His numbers are identical at the same age as Jose. Yeah. No, that doesn't he's mean identical. it's going to happen. You could take them side by side, and you couldn't pick who's who if you didn't have a name to it. But here's here's and here's where. Go ahead. I, I, yeah, I, here's where that kind of falls apart is projecting what you're going to have to pay your two big infielders and others and <laughs> what you're going to have to pay Hernandez because Hernandez is going to be a 20 plus million dollar guy before you know it. And the other two might be $30 million guys in Guerrero and Bichette. Where's that money coming from? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're going to have to make some tough decisions here. This isn't a uh, 10 piece jigsaw puzzle. This <laughs> oh, no. 50-piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. It's all, it, it covers your entire dining room table. Absolutely. And you know what? All the pieces look the same. And now you've got to figure out long-term. And this is this is what, what I think Ross and, and, and Mark have done a great job at, trying to figure out how you're going to maintain this year in and year out and bring in more prospects, more prospects, more prospects. What happened to the 15 and 16 team? There wasn't a layer of prospects coming behind them. Right. And they all got old. And then when this front office traded away all those named players, the fan base went nuts. What are you doing? You're, you know, but they had to. They didn't have anybody coming. Mm -hmm. And they had to fulfill, they had to complement the minor league system. And they brought in guys that, you know, some of them have panned out, some of them haven't. But you're right about you have to figure out how much is it going to cost us in 22 and 28 because we're going to keep Bo and Vlad. Yep. Yeah. We're going to keep them. I mean, you wait your whole lifetime to have guys like this. I mean, this is Molitor and Young. This is Brett. This is Cal Ripken. This, these are the guys that you want to play one uniform the rest of their life, and you've got to figure out how you're going to do it. So now – how much money is it going to take and when do you strike? And the players, I mean, they can sit back and, you know, they're young players. They don't have a lot of responsibilities. They make a half a million dollars for a couple of years and then boom, you know, they're going to own half of the organization. But you have to make sure you keep them first and foremost. And then you figure out how can we complement them utilizing our dollars the most effectively. And that's a big puzzle. Well, sure and we all know that we all know what the math is. We know the center fielder makes 25 million. We know the second baseman and, or the shortstop and the first baseman are going to make 30 million. Uh, you got a, at least one, well, you got one pitcher now at 20 million. You're going to have more yeah. of those. Hernandez is going to be a 20 plus million dollar guy, maybe, and if, maybe and 25. If you, and Sorry, if you're keeping John. Simeon, and if you're keeping Simeon, and if you're keeping Simeon, he's what at 25 buck? Yeah. Right. Probably. Now. Yeah. Well, that's, that's $150 million right there. Right. So and you haven't been able, and you haven't been able to fulfill the minor league players. So they are a, <laughs> an important piece of your puzzle because the minor league players have to have an impact for three, four, five years before they make big right. money. Right. Yep. And you have to keep cycling those players in. So that's why Gabe Moreno and Otto Lopez and Aurelvis Martinez and all these kids become important because you have to be able to project them into playing roles, not just coming up and being extra guys. They got to come up and play for three or four years to keep your salary at a reasonable base. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and by the way, and, and we touched on it yesterday too, uh, we're talking about dollars being spent, uh, but we don't really know what the new collective bargaining agreement is all about. Right, Buck? Yeah. And, and that was Ross Atkins addressed that too. And he said, we're going to have to make some decisions 
without a large measure of certainty. You're going to have to make some decisions. And the players are in the same boat. So if you make a valid offer to a Simeon and say, okay, here's our offer at this time. We don't know what free agency is going to bring. We don't know what kind of price tags are going to be tied to free agency. We don't know what draft choices are there and what the luxury tax is going to be like. But under this agreement right now, here's our offer in today's dollars, and we'll guarantee you this deal for five years. That is a roll of the dice I think the Blue Jays are willing to take. And now you have to satisfy the player because he too doesn't know what free agency is going to be like come next March. Nobody knows. No. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a player rep, correct? Yes, oh. long time. Yeah. Um, Marcus Simeon's involved in the Player Association. Very yes, heavily. He is, yeah. yeah. So where, where do you think this war is likely to, you know, be focused? Is it going to be on a cap of some sort or an adjustment of the rules and regulations limiting how much teams can play, pay? It's hard to fathom baseball needing a cap when they're spending money as freely as they are. How many $300 million contracts have we seen in the last couple of years? Tatis, Vendor, Cole, Scherzer's going to end up with another big deal. He'll probably end up making $40 million a year for a couple more years. Um, And the one thing that Marvin Miller always used to say to us at the time, much lower numbers, of course, was if the owners couldn't afford it, they wouldn't pay it. (laughs) And that's still the case. And, you know, I mean, there's going to argue for a cap because they're, what they want players to do is to control the owners. They want players to agree to a cap so the other owners won't spend beyond their means or beyond their perceived means. But you, whenever you have the Mets and the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cardinals, I mean, there's a lot of big money teams that are making, I mean, there's a, how many teams do you think are worth over a billion dollars right now? Uh, most. Half? Well, I would say more than half. More than half, of course. And the TV money is ridiculous. But one thing they better well, do... Well, and I think... Go I ahead. just say, saying, Buck, the, 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 the thing that uh, the baseball has done better than any other league, and I'm talking about the owners, is they have developed secondary and tertiary lines of income. When you look at baseball advanced media, when you look at ownership of television networks, I mean, the Red Sox own 80% of Nesson, you know, how, 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 I mean, and I'm not sure that the players are getting their fair share of that type of money. When you think I can about guarantee it. you they're not. And that's going to be a big point when they sold the, the uh, MLB mass media advanced media thing, players got zero of that. And that was a huge price tag. Mm. So that's going to be part of the negotiations. What concerns me is, and I hope that there are enough wise men involved that they understand not a sport in the world at this time in the world can handle a work stoppage of any sort. If that happens, they're going to turn it off and turn it off for a long time. So they need to come to an agreement they need to keep it out of the media. They need to get a deal done. And after the first of the year, say baseball will be fine for the next five years. We've agreed to a deal. That's the best thing they could ever do. Well, yeah. And you're referring to the COVID situation and the fact that they played a limited schedule and they played with um, so many games with nobody in the stands. Absolutely. With, with, no, with none of that revenue. And you know what that did? That proved to fans they didn't need the game. Somebody- yeah, Maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of fans who said, you know what, I didn't need to go to those games I thought I needed to go to. I'll sit back and I'll watch and maybe watch on TV and maybe well, not that's as many point. games as I did in the past. Yeah, yeah. I think I think more accurate, I think that's the accurate thing. The, 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 they didn't lose interest, but they just realized that not going to the games, yeah. you know, watching on TV is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. You know? No, I think that's uh, that, that's been a product of this too, because everybody felt like, boy, you got to be down there at the stadium to get the tr- full experience, and that's not the case, obviously. Um, I don't know if there's anything we haven't touched on. I mean, the only the only thing that, that I can wind back to 
And I don't disagree with you in the notion of the, you, you mentioned a bunch of third basemen who would all look really, really good in a Toronto Blue Jay uniform. But again, now you're talking economics and you're talking the ability to go and get those players. Um, can you get away with a guy who is what we used to call a lollipopper, you know, a guy that doesn't hit home runs in Espinal, <laughs> but play, has a good glove, Yeah, hit 300 or close to it, Wow. Got a lot of important hits when he got the opportunity. Can you get away with that, Buck? They won, what, 91 games this year with that? Well, yeah, although he did, you know, because of injury and whatever, you know. But too, I mean, he, he's not a run producer. He's a very good defender. Uh, you've got run producer at short, run producer at second, run producer at first, run producer in the center. Run producer right. Right. Run, run producer in left, arguably. Yeah. So where do, and you know, you're not getting much from your catchers, but that's okay. Catching is a unique position that allows you the luxury of not having to have offense from your catcher when you've got a shortstop that hits a ton and your whole middle infield hits a ton and your first baseman's one of the best hitters in their league. So I, I think they could get by with it. I think there would be a better team with a left-handed hitting third baseman. I don't doubt it. Yeah. Uh, the other one is, you had three catchers on the roster this year. Right. Right. That is not something that you want to do. No. Um, it just kind of evolved that way. At least one of these catchers, I believe, is going to go. Maybe two of them. Who's the one? Who's the guy you keep of those three? Of the three, Danny Jansen. I mean, Kirk made dramatic strides. He impressed me. I was skeptical of his ability to catch. He did a fine job. Physically, how much can he hold up? You know, he's 22. He weighs 265 pounds. He's a little guy. Your body's carrying a big load there. And can he, can he lose 35 or 40 pounds? I don't know. Vladdy did. Vladdy's a much bigger guy. But the rigors of catching suggests to me that he might not be able to hold up. He's 22 years old and he looks like that. And he has to take better care of himself and get into a position. But to his credit, he did a hell of a job of catching. He caught Robbie Ray all the time. He caught nasty balls in the dirt. He threw pretty well. I'm not of the mind that he's a great hitter. I think he caught the league off guard a little bit. He got some good hits. He's got a good swing. I don't know how much he's going to hit on a regular basis. So if I were keeping anybody, it would be Danny Jansen. Uh, Reese McGuire made some dramatic strides as well, but he too is not going to be a run producer. But I, I think Danny improved a lot this year. He got better, uh, more relaxed behind the plate. I think these guys get this uh, nonsense of framing the pitches and they forget to catch the ball. You're a catcher, you know, you're a catcher, you're not a framer. And I, I just think that uh, Danny would be the one I would keep. But Gabe Moreno is the one I think is going to be the long-term answer. He'll probably start in AAA next year and probably see him by mid-season next season. If Kirk didn't hit from the left side, would he still be here? Yeah. I, no, he doesn't hit from the left side. He's a right-handed hitter. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought he, I thought Maguire, he switched Maguire's it. a left-handed Maguire. hitter. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, um, I think that's an area where they could improve too. And, you know, if you, I mean, there's so few catchers around and, you know, the Blue Jays have three catchers that uh, can catch in the big leagues. No question about it. All three of them can catch in the big leagues on a good team. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if any one of them is an everyday player, but how few catchers are everyday players nowadays, you know, a, a big a uh, big milestone for catching is like 120 games. You catch 120 yeah. games, you're an Ironman in this game. So yeah. I don't think you need that guy like Bench and Fisk and Alomar, those guys anymore. Well, if you move Kirk, you move McGuire, um, if that's possible. Um, you go and get yourself a veteran catcher just to be a backup. Uh, Jansen gets most of the work. And then you wait and see what yep. how quick Marino's ready, huh? The problem you have, Bob, is that uh, I don't think there are that many veteran catchers around that you can say, okay, maybe. I mean, you'd like to have Kurt Suzuki seven years ago. You'd like to have Austin Romine five years ago, those types of guys, but there are not many around. No, there just I get aren't it. many. Kevin Ploiecki, 
for the Boston Red Sox, did a hell of a job as a backup catcher. And he would be the type of guy that could fit that rule. But still, you'd like to have a left-handed bat. Uh, Buck, enjoy your golf game today. Um, Great to be with you guys. Always a pleasure. And uh, I hope pleasure. we do this um, during the postseason before it's all over. Oh, we're going to. We're going to call you. We promise. Right. Thanks, right. pal. All the best. Okay. Buck Martinez. We'll come back after these messages. Our thanks to Buck Martinez, as always, uh, for joining us. And um, he wants to come back, John. So, I get, hey, I gathered that. You know, the, the, the magic of the producer, uh, the magic of doing a podcast is that uh, unlike uh, mainstream television, where somebody's counting in your ear 99% of the time, uh, you can actually finish a thought. And you can actually expand on storylines and and espouse opinions, uh, and I think I think Buck actually enjoys um, the the uh, the soapbox because he's he's so well informed about so many things, collective bargaining, how to play the game, how to manage the game, um, and then there's sometimes those opinions that Buck has we don't really hear very much on the broadcast. No. Um... And I think it's interesting that we had uh, the last two days we did baseball principally with Shai Davidi and then with Buck Martinez and not exclusively, but for the most part, their opinions are similar. Um, and they've, they've convinced me that Semyon is the guy you got to sign. Um, you know, I would have said probably as much as I love Semyon, you gotta, you gotta get the pitching, you know, you, yeah. you just can't find it. But I think they both make a strong case. Uh, maybe you'd get, maybe you'd sign both the pitchers if Semyon wasn't there too. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that the fact that they've got him. And look at, let's remember, one of the keys, if not the key, to the Blue Jays' last World Series success was the guy who played second base. Oh yeah. Who was as good a player as there was in, in the game at that point? At the time. time. Yeah. That's right. And and Semyon is. Looks like he's pretty close to being that guy too. Also, the his impact on the other players, Bob. That was the thing that Buck really highlighted. That to me was pretty impressive. That that's similar to what you hear about guys like Sidney Crosby in in Pittsburgh and, and the influence he has not just on his own game, but the the game of his of his teammates. And that's that was impressive. Well, I don't know, I don't know what it means, but there was one guy on the Toronto Blue Jays that played 162 games. Was and Marcus, it was Marcus yeah. Simeon. Yeah. Uh, we got to get out of here. Uh, enjoy your weekend, and uh, we'll come back. We'll uh, dig something up or somebody up and uh, cart them in here on Monday. We hope you'll Oh, we're doing another that. hockey preview. Okay, good. Perfect. We're doing, we're doing a hockey preview. Uh, for Shannon McCowan, see ya. See ya.